Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hello and a good morning to you. Um, uh, it's, what the hell is it? <laughs> Wednesday. It's Wednesday, uh, November 20-something or other 8. Uh, I, I want to um, uh, say that I'm, I, I really, f- you know, I've been doing this, uh, you know, talking to people with a mic in front of me for um, over 40 years. And in the course of doing that, literally tens, maybe over 20,000 hours of, of speaking, obviously there are a number of hours that um, I d- that are not uh, ones that I am proud of. <laughs> and I would say that that is true of the show so far this week. I want to apologize. I don't know. Uh, frankly, I would not listen to <laughs> either Monday or Tuesday show. Tuesday's a little bit better by virtue of my sister's inclusion, but uh, uh, just so depressed and so bleh and down and low low energy, as a certain someone would say. And I'm, I'm really going to try to step it up today because it, it does nothing but make me unhappy as well. Uh, granted, I am not feeling well, but... Uh, but here, here I am, and uh, damn it, uh, I, I mean to do uh, as good as I can uh, for you. Um, it is, uh, well, I, my God, how often do I have to say this? <laughs> it's, it's hard for me. I am, uh, uh, by, by nature, an empathic empathetic, empathic, whatever, I feel other people's, like Bill Clinton, I feel your pain. I do. And it makes it, you know, that doesn't make me a better person. It's just the way I'm wired. And in fact, it makes me sometimes uh, a person who is not capable of sort of soldiering through difficult times. I instead just come apart. And that's, you know, not good. And and I'm you know, you've seen that these last few years have been a real struggle uh for me. Uh and I know <laughs> it's not going to get better. It could well get worse. And um, I, I am struggling to, I desperately look for, you know, more positive uh, things to talk about. And as you can tell by Monday's show especially, I, I, I come up uh, empty. However, let me, all that said, and I, I don't even know why I'm saying except I feel um, I'm embarrassed when I don't rise to a certain level of uh, professionalism that that I expect of myself. Uh, so that being said, let's uh, let's jump in. I uh, not feeling well. I did not want to do what I did last night. I went to a play that had been something that had been on the my calendar for a long time. Uh, it was with a friend, and um, I didn't want to you know, let my friend down, and so um, I went, and <laughs> it was the most depressing play. You you cannot, I mean, I, two minutes into it, I thought, I don't know if I can make it out of here alive. I actually closed my eyes through some of it, thinking, I just, I don't want to look, I'll listen. Um, that's not to say it's not a good play. In fact, it was the winner of the Pulitzer Prize for drama uh, last year. It's it's called Sweat, and it's playing now at the Public Theater, Pittsburgh Public Theater. And it was doubly powerful last night because I felt as if I were. It was so real because what it is about is the lives of 
a handful of factory workers in Reading, Pennsylvania. Uh, the year is 2000. And then it jumps back and forth from 2000 to 2008. In the interim, their employer, the only factory uh, that employed most of the people in the town, shut down, moved its uh, jobs to Mexico. And the play is about the impact of that. And you know, the impact is horrific. People lose their homes. I mean, the drama in this case is, is really realistic. People lose their homes. They slip into addiction. Families break up. Some people end up in jail. The, the, the toll on just individual lives that that business decision made by a bunch of suits in a boardroom somewhere else has on these people is, is incredible. And the whole time I was watching it and listening to it, I was thinking about just a stone's throw down the road in Youngstown, in Lordstown, Ohio. This is playing out right now, real. The play is very real. So I felt like I am, I felt like I was sitting in, I was sitting with people in Lordstown last night. And the one thing that is so clear, and it is that the way things are set up, right, they are not set up to benefit little people. That'd be pretty much all of us. They are set up to benefit people with position, wealth, and power. And little people sometimes enjoy what the, the, I guess, the trickle down, the crumbs, the jobs that might be created. Until, of course, a better thing comes down the pike for the people who are providing those jobs. And then they happily pick up and take their factory someplace else and leave all these people with nothing. There are no uh, compacts, no contracts anymore. You know, there used to be a, some stability in people's lives. And it's just all gone now. It has to do because of globalization. And uh, American workers, blue-collar workers in this country, you want to know who's voted, who voted for Trump? It's those people who've just been beaten up by the effects of globalization. And in the play, a Hispanic guy, lowest of the totem pole in the play, finally sees an opportunity to get into the factory to make more than he's ever made. And that's when they lock the regular workers out who storm out in a strike. And so he goes in as a scab. And the hatred that these white workers, white and black workers, feel toward this Hispanic is, you know, is, is pretty astonishing to see. And efforts by some in the play to say it's not his fault. He's just like us. He's trying to make a buck. He's trying to get ahead. It's so clear that the people at the top are so successful in pitting workers against each other by race, right, by gender. And so the workers end up spending so much time fighting people who are just as desperate as they, and the people in the suits sit above it all, 
enjoying their lives of plenty and suffering no consequences. In fact, being rewarded for a smart business decision, their stock price goes up. So it was very odd to go to that last night after the news was so raw and and reflecting so much this this drama. And I opened the Wall Street Journal this morning and there's the mayor of Lordstown saying, you know, like I, uh, easily a quarter, if not more, of his uh, city uh, budget relied on that plant. So services that the city provides to the people will be hard to come by, harder than ever, exactly when the people in that town will need more. Uh, and as in the play, this didn't just come out of nowhere because that plant in Lordstown two years ago was three shifts until it was two. And then last year from two to one. And I have to tell you, so jobs were being, jobs were being lost over the last three years. And in the play, that's how it happens too. You know, it's just sort of a gradual until they flat out shudder it. And I, as you know, somebody traveling on the Ohio Turnpike heading toward my, my brother's house back and forth a number of times during that period, always going by that uh, GM plant. And I remember noting, it would have been, I guess, two, three years ago, I remember noting when all of a sudden it looked empty. The, there were no cars in the parking lot when there had been tons of cars in the parking lot. And I thought, did it close? It hadn't closed. It just, obviously, I went by when a shift was done away with. So the last few times I've gone by there, it's been, it's looked dead. And you read the remarks of people in there, and it's, it's actually, the play just keeps, I'm so mixed up in my head between the play and like this story. They're one and the same generations of people in these small towns worked in the factory, in the mill, in this factory. There's a woman interviewed here who was making $30 an hour at GM. Her husband works there too. They're both now out of work. Her father had worked at that plant for 46 years. It's all they know. But here's what I want to say, because after it was done, the play, I mean, I just felt beat up and bummed out, and I thought, yeah, I didn't need that. I Also, what is this thing that, it does at the end of every play in Pittsburgh now, there's a standing ovation? I've never been to one where there isn't, and I, I want to say, I don't know if they mean anything if they're a given. I didn't think it was a standing ovation kind of performance myself. <laughs> but granted, I'm in a bad mood in general. But I, I, seeing I was the only one not standing, I thought, all right. I mean, the actors work hard as hell. I'll get up. And, and, and so I did. But I'm a little surprised it won the Pulitzer, too, just between me and you. But here's the thing I said to my friend as we were walking out. Why do we, sp we spend money to go to entertainment, a movie, a play, a whatever, that is a total reflection of the depressing reality we are living in? Why would we do that? I mean, I am depressed enough by the reality in the newspapers. Why do I go to a dramatic depiction of that reality? 
for entertainment? It's not my idea of entertainment. And then I thought of how during the Depression, right, Hollywood put out movies that were the antithesis of the reality that people were suffering. <coughs> they put out <coughs> these Busby Berkeley musicals, these big extravaganzas of dancing and joy and, and sometimes humor and uh, happy endings and stuff like that. And I got to tell you, can somebody tell Hollywood, and for that matter, the people who are putting on plays here, that, man, we need that now. I need respite. I would spend a lot more money seeking out uh, entertainment that distracted me from the reality, that made me laugh. That's what I need that would make me feel happier, that would show me the good things in life. Uh, how come they knew that a hundred years ago and now uh, are purveyors of, uh, of stage and screen entertainment think we just want to continue wallowing in violence and betrayal and human suffering? <laughs> Why? Just say it. Sometimes there is a, a time and a place for happy entertainment, for even mindless entertainment, for laughter. And if that time ain't now, I don't know when it is. I'm serious. Just saying. And then when I left the play, of course, I checked out the news and saw that the inevitable had happened in Mississippi. God, is that woman awful. I mean, she is just, just God-awful. Here's the good news. She is just filling out a term, right? I think she's up for re-election again in 2020. I think she just ran for a two-year term there after first being appointed to it. And now she's she's going to have to run again in, in two years. So maybe we can get her out then. But I have to think of the good people of um, Mississippi. And got to wonder where their heads are. They f apparently find it impossible to elect a Democrat. Haven't done it in, what, 40 years? Everything in Mississippi is based on race, race, and the white people there are hanging on. And they'll hang on to the Republicans and white candidates till they go down. How do you keep voting for the same people that keep you the laughingstock of the nation? You look at any list, and Mississippi's at the bottom. At the bottom. You would think they would turn to a fresh idea. A different party perhaps might raise their level of, uh, of life up a little bit. But no. The latest rankings for uh, education in, in the states has Mississippi at 47 at availability of health care to the residents of Mississippi, they are flat out 50, the last place to be if you want to be healthy. They place last in income, in employment, they're number 47. In fiscal stability, they're number 45. In infrastructure, they're number 49. And when you ask Americans, are you happy? Mississippians come in 43. It's bottom of the barrel at Mississippi. And man, they're sticking with the people who put them there.
It's fascinating to me. Fascinating. And speaking of those uh, southern states, there is uh, an effort. As you know, the Trump administration, with the help of Mitch McConnell and the Republican Senate, is, as I've said quite often, packing the federal judiciary, not just the Supreme Court, with uh, Kavanaugh's and Gorsuch's and the like, and sometimes even worse than those two. One that is apparently worse than those two is a guy named Thomas Farr, F-A-R-R. He um, hails from Raleigh, North Carolina, and he's like, he's next up to be put on the federal judiciary. And this guy is so vile, apparently, <laughs> that the Democrats, even though they don't have the numbers, are mounting an all-out effort to deny him that seat. Now, they can't, they don't have the numbers. It's 51-49, right? And that's about to get a lot worse come January when the new Senate is, it's going to be, what is it, 53-47? Yeah. So we lost uh, seats in the Senate. But, of course, Chuck Schumer breezed uh, into his leadership position, while Nancy Pelosi, who picked up uh, 40, almost, seats, uh, is beset by um, all kinds of uh, naysayers. Go figure. What would be the difference? A woman who delivered or a man who didn't, and the man breezes through? Just saying. The... Uh, Congressional Black Caucus uh, said about Thomas Farr this, It is no exaggeration to say that had the White House deliberately sought to identify an attorney in North Carolina with a more hostile record on African American voting rights and workers' rights than Thomas Farr, it could hardly have done so. So there's a coalition of progressive groups and the NAACP and the Black Caucus and uh, a lot of other folks trying to stop this. They've peeled off one Republican. That would be, go ahead, fill in the blank, yeah, the uh, soon-to-be-gone Jeff Flake. He says he will not vote for him. So, to stop this noxious uh, candidate, used to be the uh, counsel uh, for, you remember Senator Jesse Helms, just about the most vile human to ever, although Mitch McConnell has upped the ante, but Jesse Helms, um, who's called the Civil Rights Act the single most dangerous piece of legislation ever introduced in the Congress of the United States. A Civil Rights Act, dangerous, yeah, dangerous to white privilege, white male privilege. So this is a guy that Farr learned uh, from, and he's been known to, in every way he can, uh, block black people from voting. Uh... There are cases after cases that the opponents of this guy can cite in which he defended or personally oversaw tactics clearly designed to disenfranchise black voters. And at this point, unless another Republican senator can be found, he will gain even more power very soon. Speaking of voter suppression, you may have heard that um, in Georgia there has been a federal lawsuit uh, filed that happened yesterday uh, accusing the state of Georgia of systematically disenfranchising black 
voters, um, and specifically uh, the current now governor when he was Secretary of State. That would be Brian Kemp, who uh, won supposedly over Stacey Abrams in what looked to be uh, a pretty stinky kind of election. Um, it's known that Kemp's offices purged hundreds of thousands of voters from the rolls uh, prior to the election, uh, the vast majority of whom were African-American. He placed tens of thousands of registrations, generally from people who would vote Democrat, on hold. Uh, the election day process was a mishmash of, uh, of mistakes and problems and all of it amounting to voter suppression and the election of the Republican, of course. So part of this federal uh, lawsuit asks that the courts reinstate in Georgia what is called a, a pre-clearance regimen. And a pre-clearance regimen means that any time Georgia would seek to do anything with its voting apparatus, laws, infrastructure, whatever, it would require approval from a federal judge to ensure that they were not up to what they are forever up to, which is trying to, of course, steal elections by disenfranchising black and Democratic voters. Now, you may recall that Georgia was under such a regimen until just a few years ago. And a few years ago, what happened? John Roberts and his court said the Voting Rights Act isn't really necessary anymore. All these states and jurisdictions that have been under federal review are doing just fine. There is no racism going on anymore. Do you remember this? What was the year? It was 2013, five years ago. The case was Shelby County versus Holder, then the Attorney General, and um, they lifted the oversight. They lifted the pre-clearance reviews of all of these southern states, and lo and behold, those southern states went to town. It's the only way. I mean, if you look, again, if you look at the gains made in this midterm election, now that the dust has settled, there was a blue wave. There was a blue wave, and it would have produced even greater numbers of flipped seats, but for the gerrymandering and the voter suppression in Republican-dominated states. It would have been something wondrous to see. As it is, it was a bigger turnaround than we have pick up that we have seen for Democrats since Watergate, which seems about right. Uh, Chris writes, instead of going to the depressing play, <laughs> well, it's too late now, you should have attended the Tree of Life Memorial concert last night at Heinz Hall. Well, I was just across the street being depressed. It was so beautifully done, somber, but uplifting. Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra and the Mendelssohn Choir outdid themselves. I'm glad. Tickets were free, and the concert was sold out. Oh, wow, wonderful. Well, I'm happy for all of you who were there. If you want to see it, QED is broadcasting it nationally. PBS then is broadcasting it, right? Nationally on December 11th at 8 p.m. That's great. 
good. Yeah, I, geez, I almost made it. I was just one building down. Hope you're feeling better. Thank you, man. I do too. Hang in. And she says, I still hang in with you, whether you're depressing or silly. Um, I'm so depressing lately. I can't stand being around me. So that's why I can't figure why anybody else would want to tune into this. Okay, what else we got? Oh, this blew my mind. Does the name Eamon Bundy mean anything to you? Yeah. His um, Eamon Bundy is the son of uh, a guy named, oh, what's the father's name? I want to say Cleavon. It's, it is, right? Cliven, Cleven, something like that, Bundy. These are the two uh, guys who've gotten in trouble with uh, the feds um, who see government encroaching on their land and blah, 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 and uh, have actually gone to jail as a result. They're the one who, remember there was an armed standoff in 2014 with those guys, the Bundys and their buddies on horseback and and, and and they just regularly, uh, you know, clash with the government. Um, but here's what's fascinating. And actually, they were the guys behind that standoff when they took over that forest, right? A wildlife ref refuge in uh, somewhere, Oregon. 41-day occupation. I'm getting it now. And some one of their... One of the guys was killed by law enforcement, and then Bundy was acquitted by a jury for for whatever he did um, in the occupation. Anyway, so these are the guys, the Bundys. And I got this from the Washington Post. Eamon Bundy. I'm going to read you some quotes from Eamon Bundy because it's fascinating. He is all over Donald Trump. What is he all over Donald Trump for? He, Eamon Bundy, is all over Donald Trump for his disparagement of the refugees, for his treatment of refugees. Okay, so I had trouble getting my head around this because we tend to, you know, take people like Eamon Bundy and we put them in a basket of deplorables and we ascribe to them all kinds of uh thoughts and we make all kinds of assumptions but listen to some of what he said it's in a video that he posted on Facebook quote speaking of Trump he has basically called them all criminals and said they're not coming in here seems to me there's been this group stereotype but what about those who've come here for reasons of need? What about the fathers, the mothers, the children who have come here and are willing to go through the process to apply for asylum so they can come into this country and benefit from not having to be oppressed? I, I'm just saying, that's not what I said. Then he goes into how Trump uses fear. It's all fear-based, and frankly, it's based on selfishness. I'm going to lose something by them coming in. I think that's incorrect, but also to base your arguments or your motives or your actions upon fear is a very dangerous thing to do. I just want to say I was uh, stunned by that. He said he did his own research on the border trying to get separate fact from fiction and propaganda from, you know, reality. And he said this, I tried to go outside of the media, uh, both in this case the media from the conservative side and the media from the liberal side because I don't believe either of them are telling the truth. 
on the liberal side, you have, oh, we've got to let them in. And then you have the conservative side of it that has it that they're here because they've been sent by the United Nations or they're being paid by George Soros. They're a bunch of terrorists. That is a bunch of garbage. He goes on to argue that the majority of those people are fleeing violence in their countries. And he says, and then they come to our border and they have a right, a legal right, to apply to come into this country. Each one of them should be considered individually. And then he talks about this being a so-called Christian nation. This is Amon Bundy, he said. I have been frankly surprised, disappointed, and even at times disgusted by the amount of people who profess to be Christians but will not truly adhere to what Christ said. He said that some statements he has made before uh, showing his sympathy toward these people have resulted in him receiving death threats. But he says he's steadfast. These are people, Bundy said. The majority of them need help. There's a possibility of danger with some of them. They need to be vetted. And when they need to be brought in here and added to this, and then they need to be brought in here and added to this great, wonderful country. Ain't that something? It gave me pause. It really gave me pause. I had him all figured out, and guess what? Uh-uh. I was wrong. I might have been right in some parts, but I was wrong. And speaking of immigrants, I found this um, in, and, uh, and I'm unclear, I have never seen this before. It's called Payday Report. And I think it's out of the, a southern state. Uh, but they report that right now, I guess there's a, a on Mar at Market Square, there's a holiday celebration and sale that's going on. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Haven't been over there. And the downtown holiday market. And this piece starts out by talking about the Tree of Life killing and how the gunman there attacked that synagogue because the worshippers supported the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, by the way, which I, for the first time, have now become a donor of and will continue to. So... The article points out that all over Pittsburgh there's, you know, Jewish stars and the phrase stronger than hate and the giant eagle posting love thy neighbor, no exceptions and all that kind of stuff. And then they said, so it's really surprising to go to Pittsburgh's downtown holiday market and see that the Pittsburgh Downtown Partnership is allowing a prominent anti-immigration group to sponsor the market. What? Well, here's who's in their crosshairs, and this is interesting. It's the Colcom Foundation. Colcom Foundation, one of the many foundations here in Pittsburgh, not quite as high profile locally as some of the others, but it was founded by... Um, Richard Mellon Scaife's family. And it, according to this article, the Colcom Foundation is one of the largest funders of anti-immigration groups in the United States. And they got some good, um, our local papers need to get on this. According to IRS documents obtained uh, by this news uh, organization, in 2016 alone, Colcom gave almost $20 million 
to anti-immigration groups, including American Border Patrol, the Center for Immigration Studies, which is totally off the wall, and the Federation for American Immigration Reform, so-called FAIR. By the way, the Southern Poverty Law Center has designated all three of those organizations as hate groups. So Colcom has funded a lot of these pseudo-think tanks. It's, it's one of the things that... Uh, it, it, it's one of the things that uh, Scaife famously did. But to make it look, that's not done locally. They're doing that out there. Locally, they do things like sustain some local parks, uh, fund holiday events like the downtown holiday market, where you can see their logo on Santa's house and on a number of other uh, areas of Market Square now. <coughs> so, on the national level, they are one of the leading funders of anti-immigration uh, white nationalists. And on the local level, they... They sponsor all these, you know, very civic-minded um, things. And the Pittsburgh Downtown Partnership, which runs the Pittsburgh Holiday Market, is apparently perfectly happy to take their money. And these people who tried to get the uh, Downtown Partnership to explain why they were taking the money from this funder of hate groups uh, refuse to um, comment. And according to this piece, it is vital in the wake of the Tree of Life massacre to expose groups like Colcom and not allow them to launder their hateful aims by funding Christmas events. So uh, I'm going to make sure our guys here at City Paper see this and um, and get this out there. I don't know a lot about this um, <coughs> excuse me, it's called Payday Report. <coughs> and the guy who wrote this piece uh, Mike Elk has also written for the New York Times and writes for The Guardian. <coughs> Ouch. Uh, okay. So, wanted to say that. Milton wants to know the source of all that Eamon Bundy interview. Um, it's, it said it was in a Facebook post. That's all I have. He posted it on Facebook. The Washington Post, I think today, picked, you know, did a story on it. And so that's all I can tell you. <laughs> um, Obed of the day, and I do this with a heavy heart. Stephen Hillenberg. I didn't know his name. I just enjoyed his work. And I wouldn't have known his work if I hadn't been a mom who had a little a boy with a really good taste in uh, animation and cartoons. So Steven Hillenberg is the guy behind SpongeBob SquarePants. He, uh, he died uh, yesterday. Only 57 years old. He had ALS. And if you've never seen SpongeBob SquarePants, I mean, it is, he created just a delightful under-the-sea <laughs> community uh, in a place he called Bikini Bottom. And it was geared to children, but I assure you <laughs> that... An awful lot of parents had no trouble watching those cartoons with um, with their kids. They're just wonderful. 
and so wonderful that it translated all over the world. He's, in the Obed, he says, somebody once sent me a link to a video of Russian soldiers <laughs> singing the Spongebob theme song while marching. <laughs> Aw. Uh, I, unbelievably, I guess, but not, uh, it turns out he was a former marine biology teacher. <laughs> so he knew. And when he first started try imagining this character of, that was a sponge, he was drawing the character, uh, and he drew it himself. He was drawing the character as, uh, you know, what a sponge really looks like, which is this sort of blobby, uh, amorphous kind of a figure. And then one day he just sort of decided to try him as a, just a, you know, rectangular kitchen sponge. And he, for some reason he said, that's it. That, that works. Um, and it did. He says his greatest influencers were Jerry Lewis. Well, I can see that at Pee Wee Herman. I can, you can see all of that in SpongeBob. And uh, Laurel and Hardy. There was a Broadway musical, Spawn. There are two movies um, as a result. And see, the A.O. Scott, the New York Times reviewer, said of the first SpongeBob movie, what I, this is what I want to see more of in the critiques of movies coming out. It is a welcome antidote to the self-seriousness self and brutality that rules so much of the popular culture. Yeah. It was wonderful. SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> he was a fry cook at... Um, what was the name of the remember at all in Bikini Bottom and he lived in a pineapple for um, actually th this guy cut his teeth on another of my son's favorites Nickelodeon series which was uh, Rocco's Modern Life which was a lot darker than SpongeBob SquarePants, but um, he was a writer and director on Rocco's Modern Life, if you've ever seen that. I remember like 10, 20 years ago telling adults, you guys are watching the wrong channels. I'm telling you the best stuff to watch is on Nickelodeon and, and Comedy Central. It's all of this just wonderful, fun, delightful stuff. And uh, SpongeBob SquarePants attracted all kinds of, you know, big stars to voice, to do voiceovers. David Bowie, Tina Fey, Louis Black, Betty White, David Hasselhoff, Antonio Banderas. So, it's too bad. So, the guy, Steven Hillenburg, who invented SpongeBob and who drew him said <coughs> that the success of him and the fact that he would SpongeBob became just you know this huge uh, global cu cultural phenomenon uh, was got him a little freaked after a while and he tells this story it's both weird and flattering and and then after a while, you get tired of even seeing it. It loses preciousness after a while. One night I was really beat. We'd worked really late and went to get food at some takeout place. And I was leaning against this gumball machine, just exhausted. And there was a SpongeBob looking back at me. And it's just like... Oh, brother. Steven Hillenberg, R.I.P. and thank you. We have a caller. Hello. Hello. I knew a it was you. Things. I knew it was you because I know what I aficionado and lover of SpongeBob you are. <laughs> and just recently, two instances, I quoted SpongeBob shows on Facebook. One, you know, I'm arguing with this guy over politics, 
and I accuse him of uh, being a poster child for the Dunning-Kruger effect. So he comes in and says something like, you know, <clears throat> he graduated to the cum laude, <clears throat> excuse me, from this place and the other place, and, uh, you know, gives his um, bona fides. <laughs> and me and my friend Jeff used to always, there was this one episode where Mr. Crab takes plankton, puts him in a straw, and spits him across the the, the uh, parking lot. And as, he, as Plankton's flying in the air, he's going, I went to college! <laughs> <laughs> so, I always use that with guys, you know, just because they, you know, they have a degree in accounting, think they can talk about every subject Everything. in the world. Right, right, <laughs> right. Yeah. And the other episode was where uh, Patrick Starr falls off of a cliff and accidentally picks up a piece of brain coral and puts it on his head and becomes really smart. <laughs> and uh, SpongeBob says to him, you know, let's go have some fun. He said, you mean, you know, observe some phenomenon and, and build a hypothesis based on our observations? <laughs> and, I went, <laughs> and I went, that's what I do. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I always do that. People are like, what are you doing tonight? I'll say, uh, observing phenomena <laughs> and putting an hypothesis based on my observations. That is you. <laughs> and it's kind of fun for me. But yeah, that, that show that show was, um, you know, because of course I don't have any kids, but I used to take care of a kid, you know, when that, when that was at its height and just watching that over and over and over again, you know. And to get kids to smile, when I do caricatures, I'll say, I have a question for you. And they'll go, what? And I'm like, oh, who lives in a pineapple under the sea? And they start singing with me. SpongeBob SquarePants! It was a great show. Yes, I'm so grateful that, for having that in my <laughs> Yeah, in my life, and it would not have been there if I if if Sam weren't in my house. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. Yeah, I would say the same, but that's not true. I'll watch cartoons anyway. <laughs> <laughs> As you were talking about, I just you know because of Netflix, I didn't realize this show was on. You ever see that show, Great News? No. It's think. a it's another Tina Fey thing. It was on NBC. Two seasons. You know, and it's it's really funny, huh. <laughs> but it's okay. it's on Netflix now. And okay. um, I went, I said, I went to find it, and I went, oh, this thing was on NBC. Never knew it existed. <laughs> but they did two seasons. Tina Fey's in it for the second season for like three or four episodes. But you know, she produces it, and somebody who wrote another woman who wrote with her on Thirty Rock um, is the you know the creator and writer of it. And I mean, it's an excellent show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny. It's fast-paced. You know what I mean. It's interesting. It's, and tell me again. Know. Tell me again what it's called. The good news. Great news. Great news. Great news. Great yeah. news. Okay. And, uh, thank you. Yeah, it's based in a, you know a news a news studio, and and the mom of the of the woman is I can't remember her name, but she's you know an older comedian, and it's it, I think you'll like it. I well, if it will make me laugh, I will love it. It should. It, it'll definitely make you laugh, especially since you worked in a newsroom. You know, yeah. this is why it's like, I think it'll yeah. be good for you. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Clarence. Right. Thank you. Oh, right, one, one more, one more question, real quick. Mm. Oh, who lives in the pineapple under the sea? SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> okay, there we go. What? What? <laughs> Have a good day. Yeah, you huh? too. You too. <laughs> Thank that was you. my last question. Okay, nice all right. Day. Okay, but uh, okay. all right. Bye. Bye. But it already answered it correctly, hadn't I? <laughs> we have another caller. Hello. Hey, Lynn. It's Jonathan. Hi, Jonathan. Well, I just hi. Well, I just I loved SpongeBob, and I think one of the things I I loved about SpongeBob is there. There was not a mean bone in his body. No. He was no. just purely optimistic no matter what happened to him. Uh, it, even if, you know, somebody like Plankton tr treated him horribly, he, he just couldn't see the bad in, in anybody. No. And, uh, and it was just so one. And I remember one of my favorite episodes was called Bubble Stand, where he's giving lessons on how to blow bubbles. <laughs> and, you know, his, his best friend Patrick blows this bubble of, 
of an elephant and Patrick, <laughs> it's a giraffe. And it's just, you know, just dumb stuff that like, uh, like you were saying is, is an antidote to, yeah. to what we need now. Oh and, gosh. Uh, yes. I'm grateful too, to Hillenburg. Oh, what a fine guy he must've been for this to come out of him. You know, no, absolutely. Yeah. And, and it, it goes back to something you were talking about earlier with movies. I, I like to watch TCM, and I know you do too. Right. And it, you look at those movies from the 30s and, you know, uh, forget your troubles, come on, get happy, and everybody's in, uh, you know, tucks and tails and, uh, and just to escape. And right. there's nothing, it seems like there's no escape nowadays. No. Why is that? Why aren't we better to ourselves? Why don't... I mean, people go to entertainment, and it's violence and ugliness and and reflection of the reality we're living in. How is that? A, I mean, I thought you, you we'd want to, yeah, escape. I don't get it. I think pe- I think these auteurs want to be uh, taken more seriously. seriously. You know, yeah. be considered immature. And, you know, I saw an interview with with Ben Stiller recently. Come to think of it. And he, too, you know, was a fine enough comic actor and silly and everything. And he was speaking very seriously about how that uh, that's behind him now, that he wants to do more serious work. And as I was watching the interview, I thought to myself, Ben, there is nothing wrong with bringing joy. joy. His no. parents certainly did it. Right. Why is that something less, somehow less? Yes. It's what we need exactly. now. God, we need joy and laughter and being reminded of good. And that can be entertaining. SpongeBob. Absolutely. Aw. <laughs> Just some silliness. Yeah. <laughs> Jonathan, thank you. Thanks, Lynn. Take okay. Care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah. Brian says, with Sally Wigan officially retiring, yeah, this is her last, I think Friday's her last day. Any chance of having her as a weekly guest? Well, I don't know if she'd do weekly, but I'm sure she'll be much more available <laughs> if she wants to. I mean, Sally's got a, it's going to be a rough transition for her. Uh, she's been here. She came, uh, a little less than one year before I came here and uh, so she's been here 40 years and working her tail off and I just uh, I feel for her because I think it's going to be a difficult transition it's hard I don't know and I think some people are able to create a new life after retirement but if you've had a job that you've loved or that has given you the kinds of you know success that uh, Sally's job has and access to interesting people and being sort of in the middle of things that would be hard to leave that would be hard to leave what the hell do you think I'm still doing here sitting here talking I don't know what I would do if I didn't have to get up and come out and talk. <laughs> it's sort of pathetic, I guess, but, you know, I don't have a hobby. Sally, somebody who picks up on things and gets passionate about different things, but I don't know. She'll figure it out. She's always been a world traveler, so she'll travel and probably continue to do that. I don't know. I don't know. But, yes, I actually had thought last night that I... Um, need to have her on um, yeah so I think that's uh, pretty much it and I hope to hell I'm here tomorrow <laughs> I really am uh, I'm sorry to and I won't be here one of the reasons I'm trying to plug along here is I won't be here Friday and that's just what it is um, so I, I want to hang in until at least uh, then. And we're almost there. So I'll do my best. And uh, thank you for being there. Although, believe me, I don't understand why. 
half the time. I really don't. So I'll leave you with this. Who lives in a pineapple under the sea? Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.